Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and thank you for joining us this hour. I'm Simone Sanders Townsend, in for Chris Hayes tonight on a special two-hour edition of All In. It was an hours-long shouting match in the Oval Office that nearly ended in a fistfight. There was almost a physical brawl between a top White House aide and former Trump national security advisor Michael Flynn. I'm referring, of course, to that now infamous White House meeting in December of 2020. Flynn, along with a crew of Trump's lawyers like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, presented an avalanche of baseless claims of election fraud while the White House lawyers debunked all of them. At that meeting, Sidney Powell presented Trump with a draft executive order that would have directed the military to seize our nation's voting machines. Part of that plan would have also made Sidney Powell herself a special counsel and could have imposed martial law and required a rerun of the election. Now, obviously, that didn't, and thankfully, end up happening. The mutinous ideas pitched in that Oval Office meeting did not exist in a vacuum. They were part of a desperate effort by Trump's outside legal team to append the results of the 2020 election. Those lawyers would ultimately file and lose more than 60 lawsuits pushing bogus instances of election fraud. So it makes sense that The Wall Street Journal today is reporting that special counsel Jack Smith is honing in on Trump's lawyers. Smith's team reportedly asked Rudy Giuliani specifically about that December 2020 meeting as part of his eight-hour-long interview with them last week. We are going to get some expert legal help to unpack that latest reporting in just a moment. But it's worth noting just how expansive Smith's investigation has become at this point. For months now, we have had dribs and drabs of information about the special counsel probe, each laying out a different area that Jack Smith is focused on. Like, for instance, this. America deserved an honest election. This is what they got. Suitcases of ballots added in secret in Georgia. Dead people voting in Wisconsin. A money for vote scheme in Nevada. Poll watchers denied access in Pennsylvania faulty ballot drop boxes, and clerks facing felony charges in Michigan. The evidence is overwhelming. That was an ad that Trump and his campaign put out in December of 2020. Everything but the first line is false. We have known for a while that Jack Smith has been interested in how, after losing the 2020 election, Trump raised more than $250 million using false claims of election fraud, like the kind reference in that ad. Last week, The Washington Post laid out just how interested Smith is in that part of Trump's scheme. The special counsel has reportedly been subpoenaing and questioning everyone from the digital copywriters who wrote the ads to the Trump campaign officials who signed off on them. Smith has been creating a paper trail of emails showing that a lot of the people involved in these fundraising efforts knew Trump's election fraud claims were bogus. So let's just back up for a second. We know that the special counsel investigation has zeroed in on the fundraising and the efforts by Trump's legal team. But in addition, we've also learned a great deal about his interest in the former president's fake elector scheme. 
That was the effort to have groups of Republicans effectively cosplay as alternate slates of electors. They held fake alternate electors signing ceremonies and then tried to have those fake elector certificates brought to Vice President Mike Pence on January 6th in order to stop his certification of the election. Last week, CNN reported the Trump campaign official who physically tried to bring those fake elector certificates to Pence on January 6th. He is now cooperating with the special counsel. That comes after reports that multiple fake electors themselves have been given immunity deals in exchange for their cooperation with Smith's investigation. One thing is for certain. Jack Smith knows how to walk and chew gum at the same time. What can we learn from just how all-encompassing this investigation has reportedly become? And how close is it to nearing an end? Well, joining us now is former federal prosecutor Paul Butler and MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin. Lisa, Paul, thank you both for uh, being here with us tonight. Lisa, does the breadth of Jack Smith's investigation indicate to you that we are likely to see a lot of different charges here? Or is this just that Jack Smith is dotting every I and crossing all the T's? It's really hard to say, Simone. I mean, certainly when it came to the records investigation, nobody really knew that the end was coming until we knew that the indictment was coming down. In fact, most of us didn't even know that there was a grand jury in Florida, let alone Miami, until a few days before. So I think it's really hard to read the tea leaves and know exactly what is coming down the pike. That having been said, the breadth of the investigation here is astonishing. And I think one of the things that Jack Smith and his team are trying to do is show that whatever Trump was trying to do to overturn the election, whether it was raising money under fraudulent pretenses or going out and sending alternate slates of electors to Congress, under similarly false pretenses, that the entire time he was advised repeatedly by people in his campaign, by people on the White House staff, that the underlying facts of the alleged fraud weren't facts at all, that they were dead wrong, and that there was nothing wrong with the election results that he was trying to overturn. And I think that's the import in some respects of that December 18th, 2020 meeting that you were talking about a few minutes ago. Mm. So, Paul, if... Jack Smith can prove that Donald Trump's lawyers uh, knew that they were pushing bogus fraud claims. What kind of repercussions could they be up against? Well, some lawyers have already faced repercussions from the bar. They've been censured by federal judges, including Sidney Powell. We know that Donald Trump uses lawyers as henchmen to try to get them to do his dirty work while insulating himself from any criminal exposure. But Simone, now judges and prosecutors are one to that. So when these lawyers get interviewed by prosecutors, I think they're trying to do three things. One is to see what they know about Donald Trump and especially his motive and mind state regarding the big lie. Did he know that he actually lost and was just willing to do whatever it took to remain in the White House? The other thing, as you noted, is that these lawyers themselves might have criminal exposure. They've got what's called queen for a day immunity, meaning that they can't be prosecuted based on what they say in these interviews. But that doesn't mean that Jack Smith couldn't charge them with crimes. He just have to prove that he didn't use any of their statements in the interview uh, against them in his prosecution. And the third reason is he wants to lock in their testimony. He wants to try to make sure that if Trump is eventually prosecuted, that these lawyers don't show up and try to offer uh, exculpatory 
information about Donald Trump, trying to say he's not guilty. So if his testimony is, their testimony is locked in with these mm. witnesses, um, then Jack Smith can rely on that. So it has been reported that multiple individuals very high up in Donald Trump's orbit, including Rudy Giuliani, have been offered proffer deals by the special counsel. What is a proffer deal first, Paul? So when I was a prosecutor, we called it queen for a dead. Mm -hmm. So what it means is that you go in and you spill it to the investigator. You just tell it all. Yes, because whatever you say can't be used against you in a prosecution. If you are eventually charged with a crime, prosecutors would have to demonstrate that they didn't use anything you said to charge you. But they could use that for leads. And if you lie and that's proven, then you could be charged with perjury. The reason that Smith is doing this is that if he didn't make this deal, these lawyers would almost certainly take the fifth. So this is the only way that he could get their testimony. Mm, I don't think I ever want to be queen for a day. Uh, Lisa, it seems as though that Rudy uh, Giuliani is having his aides tell any reporter that will listen that the interview that he did with Jack Smith was voluntary. Why would he even want that to be public knowledge? Yeah, Simone, I asked myself that same question last week because Rudy Giuliani even retweeted a story from CNN initially reporting that he had gone in and spoken with Jack Smith. I think he wants people to know that for two reasons. Number one, he wants Bonnie Willis's team to know that because a deal with the special counsel's office only protects him against federal prosecution. It does nothing for him with respect to the state of Georgia. And as you know, while the president can pardon someone for a federal crime, the president doesn't have power to pardon anyone for a state crime. So if Donald Trump were to be reelected, he would have absolutely no power to do anything about any prosecution, much less a conviction of Rudy Giuliani in Georgia. He wants the folks in Georgia to know that he's willing to play ball and that he's eager to play ball. I think that's his first and foremost reason for doing it. So, uh, Lisa, Fonnie Willis, she has signaled, I would argue very strongly, that charges in her investigation could come either late this month or even at some point in August. What about those tea leaves there? I mean, obviously, Rudy Giuliani seems to feel something is in the air. Um, can we glean anything from what has happened in the special counsel's investigations to these interviews that are happening to the statements that Fonnie Willis has been putting out about this timing? And should the counsel, special counsel's team be concerned? I don't think the special counsel's team has any reason to be concerned. Certainly, people can be prosecuted for different acts in different jurisdictions. I think the witnesses slash targets do have reason to be concerned, however, because although Paul can certainly tell you it's possible to cut a deal after one is indicted, it's much easier to cut a deal before that ever happens. And so if you're a person like Rudy Giuliani or, for example, Mike Roman, who was the director of Election Day operations, he's the guy who tried to deliver those fake elector slates to Mike Pence. You really want to cut any deal that you're willing and able to cut before either one of those indictments is coming down the pike for you. Well, Paul, I guess I guess we'll end here on the point about these two different investigations, right? There's Jack Smith, the federal track. There's Fonnie Willis. We haven't even gotten into uh, New York yet this week. But is is there any 
not not concern, but maybe overlap. It does Jack Smith look at what Fonnie Willis is doing just from what he's what's available to the public? Does that influence what he does and vice versa or no? You know, they're probably not talking to each other. They're certainly not talking to each other about tactics. So the answer is no. The investigations don't have a whole lot to do with each other. There was a thought that because Jack Smith charged the documents case in Mar-a-Lago, that that was it. But this grand jury that's investigating January 6th is heating up. They're hauling people like John Eastman and Mike Pence into the grand jury. You don't do that just to play around. You're doing that if you want to bring charges. I think what Jack Smith is concerned about is that by the end of this year, 2,000 people will have been charged with regard to January 6th. But these are the little guys, the soldiers, if you will, the people who are responsible for the violence. So the real question for Jack Smith is, is DOJ only going to go after the little guys or are they going to look at the people who finance and organize and fomented the insurrection, which brings us to Donald Trump and these lawyers and the big lie? Mm. All right. Former federal prosecutor Paul Butler and MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin, thank you both very much for your time. Coming up, when the Supreme Court dismantled race-conscious decision-making in college admissions, they left policies in place that benefit the predominantly white applicants whose parents and grandparents attended elite colleges before them. But today, there is a new challenge to those so-called legacies. We'll have more on that next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. New fallout today from the Supreme Court's decision striking down university affirmative action programs. Last week's decision bans race-conscious decision-making in college admissions. But in their opinions, a couple of the justices brought up a different form of preferential treatment at elite American universities, giving extra weight to applications from children of alumni and donors, so-called legacy admissions. In her dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor noted legacy applicants to Harvard, quote, are predominantly white, and although they make up less than 5% of applicants to Harvard, they constitute around 30% of the applicants admitted each year. Sotomayor called those leg- these legacies part of a, quote, admissions puzzle where most of the pieces disfavor underrepresented racial minorities. Even conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch, who joined with the majority, expressed discomfort with the legacy system of Harvard's preferences for the children of donors and alumni. He wrote, quote, while race neutral on their face, these preferences undoubtedly benefit white and wealthy applicants the most. Well, it's not hard to see why legacy admissions would benefit white applicants the most. Harvard was founded in 1636, but didn't graduate its first black student for over 230 years. 
And for a full century after that, Harvard admitted fewer than 12 black undergraduates a year. It actually wasn't until the 1970s, as affirmative action programs began to be implemented, that Harvard's black undergraduate population began to rise, which is how you get charts like this. These charts show the racial makeup of applicants to Harvard as of 2021. The blue slice represents white applicants. On the left are normal applicants with no legacy preferences. That pool is about 40% white. On the right are applicants who are children of alumni. White applicants make up nearly 70% of that pool. And here's the thing. The applicants in that heavily white legacy pool are nearly six times more likely to be admitted to Harvard than those in the general pool. Those helpful pie charts, they come from a federal civil rights complaint filed today with the U.S. Department of Education. Now, the complaint challenges Harvard's legacy admissions as a civil rights violation, and it seeks to force Harvard to stop considering applicants' relationships to alumni in their admissions process. The groups who have filed the complaint argue that ending legacy admission is more urgent than ever because race-conscious admissions policies that may have helped to offset those legacy programs have now been banned by the Supreme Court. Joining us now is Michael Kippins, litigation fellow at Lawyers for Civil Rights and the lead lawyer on this complaint filed today. Mr. Kippins, uh, thank you so much for, for being here with us. To what extent is this complaint a response to last week's Supreme Court decision on affirmative action? Well, first, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm glad to be here. We at Lawyers for Civil Rights have been concerned with the donor and legacy preferences that you've referenced for quite some time. But in light of the Supreme Court's decision that you referenced from last week, it is all the more imperative to root out any types of policies in higher education that harm communities of color and predominantly benefit white applicants. And these donor and legacy preferences are examples of those types of policies at Harvard. So uh, maybe break it down for us, for folks at home who are wondering, well, how is this a civil rights violation? How exactly do legacy admissions at Harvard violate civil rights law? Sure. So we filed this complaint under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which forbids Harvard and other types of schools that receive federal funding from having programs or processes that have a, a racial element and that discriminate on the basis of race. In this particular instance, we have the donor and legacy preferences, which, as you said, can create up to 70 percent white folks to be in uh, admitted into the school. And that can make up up to 30 percent of the class just for legacies. So for each slot in admissions that's taken by one of these applicants who was admitted through these preferences, it takes away another slot from another deserving candidate. And data that we have analyzed and that has been analyzed in connection with the Harvard Affirmative Action case shows that if donor legacy preferences were to be eliminated, that there would be a rise in the number of applicants of color admitted to Harvard. So we have been using the term complaint here, and I think that's very important um, because what you filed today was not a lawsuit. It was a complaint. So what are you seeking from the Department of Education? What exactly could they do uh, in this case? So because the Department of Education has, provides federal funds to Harvard, it has a unique position with respect to investigations. So we urge the Department of Education through this complaint to the Office of Civil Rights 
to open an investigation into Harvard, to declare that these practices are illegal, and to ensure that if Harvard wants to continue receiving these federal funds, that it cease having any connection with these admissions policies for donor and legacy preferences. And if the Department of Education agrees with you and they uh, uphold your complaint, um, is that the end of it or is there a court battle after that? Well, we at Civil Rights at this time have filed this particular federal civil rights complaint, but we are keeping all of our legal options open. This issue is a widespread issue. We have named Harvard in this particular complaint, but we are keeping our options open. Mr. Kippins, I am I'm struck by this whole thing because, as I said, as I said in the open, the 1970s, uh, specifically from that time, the black population at Harvard grew as a direct result, frankly, of affirmative action programs. Those alumni's children would, in fact, be considered legacy should they apply to Harvard. So, do you have any concern that getting rid of legacy admissions would eliminate a pipeline that? Some black families have actually had access to and been building and other families of color in recent decades. Well, my response to that would be that we at Lawyers for Civil Rights are seeking a level playing field, a field in which a person's individual merit is what gets them admitted into the school. At this point, with this particular federal civil rights complaint, that's what we're seeking. That's what we are urging the Department of Education to enforce and with respect to the number of people who have attended Harvard who may be uh, non-white and have been benefiting from this particular type of admissions policy, I would add that it pales in comparison to the number of white applicants and white families that have been benefiting from this. And as I said before, up to 70 percent of the of those applicants who are admitted through these donor and legacy preferences are white. Michael Kippens, litigation fellow at Lawyers for Civil Rights. Thank you so much for your time tonight. It seems like the people got the right lawyer on this one. We'll be watching. Thank you. Thank you so much. When we come back, folks, former Vice President Mike Pence on the notion of a colorblind society. You do not believe there is racial inequity in the education system in America? I, I just, I, I really don't believe there is. I have thoughts, so many thoughts, and I will discuss them with the great Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. That is next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 
we can move forward as a country and, and, and embrace the notion that we're all going to be judged not on the color of our skin, but on the content of our character and in this case on our GPA. Am I understanding you saying there in that answer that you do not believe there is racial inequity in the education system in America? I, I just, I, I really don't believe there is. I believe there was. I mean, it's, it's, there may have been a time when affirmative action uh, was necessary simply to open the doors uh, of all of our schools and universities. But I think that time has passed and we'll continue to move forward as a, as a colorblind society. A colorblind society. That concept was the central struggle of the Supreme Court's decision to strike down race-conscious admission policies last week. Now, on the campaign trail and elsewhere, the takeaway seems to be we have achieved some kind of colorblind nirvana, that race-conscious solutions to systemic social inequities actually disenfranchise white people. So we should be race-neutral or colorblind, like presidential candidate Mike Pence suggests. To bolster this argument in the court's majority opinion last week, Chief Justice John Roberts cited Jim Crow-era Justice John Marshall Harlan, a man often called the Great Dissenter. Roberts pointed to a specific section of Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896 as a separate but equal case. Harlan wrote, quote, Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. And in part, for that reason, the court found affirmative action in violation of the 14th, the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. But that Roberts' majority opinion happened to skip this part of Harlan's 1896 dissent. Right before the colorblind Constitution sentence, Harlan writes, quote, The white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country, and so it is, in prestige, in achievements, in education, in wealth, and in power. So I doubt not it will continue to be for all time if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. A colorblind Constitution on one hand and a quote, dominant race on the other, two diametrically opposed concepts on the same page. So this contradiction was actually laid bare in a new Atlantic piece co-authored by Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Raise an Anti-Racist and founder of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research. Dr. Kendi writes, quote, the colorblind often see their color as superior, as Harlan did. In the actual world, an equal protection clause in a constitution can be transfigured by legal fantasy, yet again to protect racial inequity. History repeats sometimes without rhyming. Race neutral is the new separate but equal. Then the fantasy was that separate facilities for education afforded to the races were equal and that actions to desegregate them were unnecessary, if not harmful. Today, the fantasy is that regular college admissions metrics are race neutral and that affirmative action is unnecessary, if not harmful. Now that racial neutrality is the doctrine of the land as separate but equal was a century ago, we need a new legal movement to expose its fantastical nature. Joining us now is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, professor and founding director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for, for being here. And I appreciate you writing that piece because I'm trying to make this case to my team over the weekend. And they were like, hmm, I don't know. I said, well, somebody going to write it. And you definitely did. Uh, Black and Latino students, they are still underrepresented in many of our country's most selective public universities. But the Supreme Court believes that we are ready for a race neutral or even a colorblind approach to admissions that excludes affirmative action. You call this a legal fantasy in the Atlantic. Why is it a legal fantasy? 
Well, I think it's best to contextualize it uh, how it was a century ago, in, in which you had uh, those litigants who were trying to desegregate uh, schools who uh, were going up to the Supreme Court, and that Supreme Court was was telling them that these schools were separate but equal, even though study after study showed uh, that Black schools receiving far and away less resources from states like Mississippi and, and, and Georgia and South Carolina than, than segregated white schools. But similarly today, you, you, you have uh, Supreme Court justices claiming uh, that uh, the only race-based admissions factor is affirmative action. But as you've already talked about, if you look at legacies that provides uh, racial preferences for, for white students, the same thing with, for instance, children of employees. White people are overrepresented uh, on the staff and faculty of, of colleges and, and universities. So that gives preferences to their, uh, to their children. Uh, it also includes white people are more likely to donate to these institutions. And, and the relatives of donors also get a boost in admissions. Even standardized tests, uh, which primarily show the wealth or the income that, of the parents of the test takers. And we have a massive racial wealth gap. So to me, it's, it's a fantasy uh, that we have race neutrality other than admit affirmative action, just like it was a fantasy a century ago that the, the schools were separate but equal. So you write that we need a, a new legal movement to expose race neutral, neutrality as a, a fantasy. What is the, the new legal movement? Well, I, I think it starts with uh, your previous guest, who is is, is actually demonstrating uh, that that legacy is actually not quote, race neutral, that it actually gives preferences to white students. And, and we start to look at some of the other admissions factors uh, that, that, dem that to demonstrate that they are leading to racial inequities uh, and, and, and disparities. Uh, and, and I think that's what we have to show. We have to demonstrate the outcome of these policies and be less focused on whether they have racial language or even the intent of the policymaker. Well, you talk about the outcome um, in California and in Michigan. Uh, affirmative action was already outlawed for their public universities in the in the 90s and in the early 2000s, actually. So black enrollment at top schools in those two states, they plummeted. It was rapidly. I believe it's about 50 percent. So let, let's talk a little bit about the broad long term consequences of that kind of drastic drop in representation of students of color in these institutions. Well, when, when, when Black, Latino, and Indigenous students are, are un underrepresented as they are at the top uh, 100 most selective institutions, that also extends into the graduate programs. Then they become underrepresented in the graduate programs. And whoever's underrepresented in the graduate programs are also likely to be under, underrepresented in the professions, like, like doctors, you know, and lawyers, or, or even on the Supreme Court. And so it, it sort of filters through throughout society when, 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 when black and brown and indigenous students are, are being excluded uh, from college admissions because of the admissions factors, uh, you know, it, it's going to then lead to other elements of society. In the affirmative action ruling, the Supreme Court uh, made a carve out, an exception, if you will, for military academies. In her dissent, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson writes that the majority decided affirmative action was fine if it meant preparing, quote, underrepresented minorities for success in the bunker, not the boardroom. What do you make of this exception? 
I mean, it, it just goes to show uh, where uh, particularly uh, Black people uh, and other uh, groups of color uh, are accepted. So we're, we're accepted when we're putting our lives on the line uh, for the United States. We're, we're accepted when we're entertaining people. We're accepted when we're serving people. But for whatever reason, we're not accepted when we're trying to be professionals, uh, you know, and build wealth like other groups. You know, I, it, it really strikes me that we are having this entire conversation, the Supreme Court is taking these actions that they have taken uh, in the wake of an attack on our, teaching our nation's history. In schools all across the, the country, um, uh, there's been a, a concerted look at critical race theory, and I'm using quotes because— not actually what is happening in schools across the country. Books are being banned. Um, in the summer that George Floyd was murdered, it, it really seemed like everyone was just—your book was flying off the shelf. Everybody's trying to figure out how to be anti, anti-racist. anti Companies were hiring DEI, um, uh, opening up DEI initiatives. There were a lot of diversity dollars, as I like to call it. Uh, but three years later, uh, many of those initiatives have dried up. Uh, your books, for example— have been banned in several states, actually. And now the Supreme Court thinks we have achieved colorblindness. You've got Republican politicians celebrating it. What is what is happening here? And and are you surprised by how far the pendulum has swung in such short amount of time? I think taking the long view of history, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised because when we look at American history, uh, whenever uh, we have achieved or sought to achieve uh, equity, whenever we have put in place anti-racist policies like affirmative action that have been proven uh, to close racial disparities, you know, in colleges and universities, the typical response historically, like currently, is has been that these policies are actually the problem, that these policies are somehow uh, anti-white. And so you've had this pretty concerted movement to transform anti-racism as the real racism. And that's precisely what Jim Crow segregationists did. Uh, you had enslavers casting abolitionists as the problem. Mm. And unfortunately, that's that's still the case today. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, professor and founding director of the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. Appreciate your time tonight, sir. Thank you for having me. Still to come on this eve of our national celebration of independence, he was once falsely accused of a heinous crime, and then Donald Trump called for him to be executed. Now, he's not only exonerated, he's on the verge of acquiring political power. And I'll talk to him next. I am here because Harlem, you believed in me. Harlem has spoken. I've often said on the campaign trail, I am not a seasoned politician. So therefore, this was not politics as usual. I got the opportunity to include in my campaign the voice of the people. The fact that people had hope in a person whose experience has lasted 34 years because that's how long I was fighting for freedom, justice, and equality. 
That was Yusuf Salam, who you might remember as a member of the Central Park Five, the black and Latino teens who were wrongfully arrested, convicted, and incarcerated for the rape and assault of a woman in Central Park in 1989. Donald Trump famously took out newspaper ads at the time and called for the death penalty for the five. Well, today they are known as the exonerated five after DNA evidence proves someone else committed the crime. And Yusuf Salam is now the front runner in the Democratic primary race for Harlem's ninth city council district. Now, a winner has not been officially declared, but Salam won twice the number of votes as his nearest competitor, a sitting assemblywoman who's been a fixture in local New York City politics and previously held that very council seat. So there is a strong likelihood that he will not only win the primary, but also win the heavily Democratic ninth district seat in November. As Yusuf Salam points out, he might be a political outsider, but he's no stranger to being in the public eye. Salam was—he's poised to win an election for a public office as part of a new generation of politicians once operating adjacent to the political party apparatus, and now they've decided to get involved. That is a, a power shift, and it's getting the attention of leaders in the community he hopes to serve. Here's what Michael A. Walron Jr., a pastor at First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem, told The New York Times about Salam's nearest competitor. He said, quote, endorsed by the institutions, the names, and it didn't help. It is definitely a signal that in Harlem, at least right now, the politics is a little bit more open than it may have been 10 or 15 years ago. Well, joining us now is Yusuf Salam, the candidate for New York City's ninth district seat. He's also, as I said, one of the exonerated five. It is good to see you, sir. Thank you for making some time this evening for us. Uh, let's let's start with talking about this election in this primary, because you won twice as many votes as your closest competitor. Inez Dickens um, formerly held that seat for at least 10 years. Why do you think that voters uh, resonated with you in this way, that they came out to support you so much? You know, the thing about our, our beloved Harlem is that people have been pushed to the back. They've been left out. They've been divested of. And I think the pain is so apparent. There's been so many people that have been looking for hope. They've been wanting hope. They've been needing hope. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, we have to occupy all spaces. If we're not at the table, we're the ones that are on the menu and they are deciding for us what our lives are going to look like. And, you know, when I think about my story, my struggles, here I was marching for 12 years after we were found innocent. Me and my brothers were out there in the streets marching for justice. There was no one in the halls of power to hear our voices. And the fact that I now had the opportunity, I would say, to lead to lead our people. Leadership is service. And how best to serve them by being one of those who understands exactly where the pain is at, understands the voices of our people and says, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. I am going to carry your voices into the halls of power. I'm going to speak truth to power. I, my word is going to be my bond. And this will not be politics as usual. You know, a recent Fox News poll found that um, trust in our institutions are actually reaching record lows with faith in Congress down to 34 percent among registered voters. We, we don't even need to talk about the Supreme Court. Do you think that your outsider status uh, really worked in your favor, given that growing sentiment? Because people didn't view you as a part of the institution, they maybe trusted you more? I think that really, really played a great part 
And the fact that here it is 34 years later, this case was a case that really trampled upon black and brown bodies in our communities. You know, the names Raymond Santana, Kevin Richardson, Corey Wise, Antron McCray, and Yusuf Salam are part of the fabric of what was considered wrong with America and now considered, wow, this is this is now case study. We need to figure out how we can ensure, in fact, that people don't go to prison for crimes that they didn't commit. And here it is. I could have been a private citizen, but I think the beauty of my story is that I've come to use the, the same platform that I've had. And I said, you know what? I'm going to help. I am going to use it to effectuate the greatest change in my community because I know we can't change things in two years. I know we can't change things in four years, but we can start a movement. And that movement includes all of us, because just like my mother told me when I was 15, she said they need you to participate in whatever it is they're trying to do. Do not participate, she said. Refuse. And so when I think about all of the ills that are uh, in, invading our community, the fact that they, that there's a, a effort trying to capture our minds, because this is a mental war that we are fighting against. If they can get me to accept that I am inferior and that they are in, they are superior, then I lost. Every single one of us was born on purpose, and the beauty of coexisting is allowing for the greatest greatness that is inside of us to to ooze out because psychosocially if i am re-embraced by society guess what i do i give the very best of myself and society in turn gives the very best of themselves and so this is a movement into our future that will literally span the next 50 to 100 years or more and i'm telling us we have to begin to plan in 100 year cycles because that's what matters the we gotta, that we you gotta are... be at the table I'm sorry to interrupt you, sir, but th this point you are making about a movement, I find it very interesting because, uh, you know, I, I used to advise a, a lot of candidates back in the day, and I always found it that it was easier, if you will, to campaign than it was to govern. And while the votes are still being counted, I, I think it's safe to say that your win in November is nearly a foregone conclusion. And at that point, you will no longer be an outsider. Um, you will be a politician. You will be a person on the inside. And as you are talking about these issues, you've listed affordable housing uh, in a number of the interviews and on the campaign trail, education funding, uh, policing as some of the biggest issues affecting District 9 that you want to tackle. And it seems to me you are laying the groundwork that uh, that that is something that you won't get done in one year or two years. Is it that you're building a coalition here? You're trying to bring people along in the political process to understand how change actually takes place? Absolutely. You know, on my platform, HarlemForYusuf.com, I've laid it all out. And what I'm really trying to get people to see is that people want a miracle. And a miracle is happening right in front of our faces. That's what resonates with people. When they see me, they don't see just an individual who's saying, you know what, I want to run for office. I think I'm going to make it. They see a person who was damaged by society, who was counted out, who then said, I'm going to bet on myself. But more than that, what I represent for our people is the very hope that we all need, that it's possible. Because if I could resuscitate my life through the grace of God, we most certainly can resuscitate our lives. The problem is that we are the secret ingredient and we have a, a, a huge mountain to lift. 
but we lift as we climb, as the young people told me so brilliantly. We have to be about that. Mm. Before I let you go, sir, I, I want to get your reaction to someone I, I think you are quite familiar with. We're learning that special counsel Jack Smith is speaking to more people in Donald Trump's circle as he investigates his role in January 6th. That is, of course, just one of several investigations into Trump. C can I just get your reaction to the legal issues that Donald Trump is facing? You know, um, I've, I've said it very succinctly, karma, because, you know, unfortunately, what has been played out in our communities, we've got this idea that we are in a United States of America, but we as black people know that we are in the divided states of America. It's always been separate and unequal. And the truth of the matter is that even when I hold out hope, stating that I hope that he gets the opportunity to get the justice that eluded us, I know that you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. But when they look at the color of our skin, they see guilty, guilty, guilty. But when you have the complexion for so-called protection, you get every opportunity under the law to get the proper, the, the law to work for you. And that's the challenge, us to be able to see it, us to see the juxtaposition, us to be able to understand what's really going on. It is technology, but at the same time, we have to know as good as the good people we are, and I'm going to call us that, we have never wanted revenge. We have only mm. wanted equality, and we definitely need equity. And so when I think about here we are on the cusp of seeing some miracle happen again and again and again, we are living in prophecy, and we have to all take heed. It's about what we do with our hands, what we do with our feet. Because all of that mm. stuff is going to come back to us. And we have to be righteous actors in everything that we do. Yusuf, Salam, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. And thank you as well. All right, folks, we have much more to come on this special edition of All In. Up next, we were just talking about it. New details in the investigations into Donald Trump. We'll be right back. Welcome back to our two-hour special edition of All In. I'm Simone Sanders Townsend. It is 9 p.m. on the East Coast, an hour that is normally hosted by the great Rachel Maddow. Don't worry, folks. She will be back next Monday. He was busy when he got the phone call, but you could tell from the ringtone that it was important. That was the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey, the former governor, I should say, in late November 2020, certifying the results of the presidential election for Joe Biden, who had won his state. And in the middle of signing that paperwork, his cell phone rang. I don't know if you caught the ringtone there, but it was hailed to the chief, a dead giveaway that it was the then president calling Donald Trump. Now, Ducey sent Trump to voicemail. He says he did call Donald Trump back, but he would not publicly disclose specifically what they talked about. Well, thanks to a massive scoop from The Washington Post, we now know what the two men discussed. According to the Post, while Doug Ducey was certifying the results of the election in Arizona for Joe Biden, Donald Trump was calling to ask him not to do it. 
Quote, in a phone call in late 2020, President Donald Trump tried to pressure Arizona Governor Doug Ducey to overturn the state's presidential election results, saying that if enough fraudulent votes could be found, it would overcome Trump's narrow loss in Arizona, according to three people familiar with the call. We know the special counsel, Jack Smith, is investigating Donald Trump's similar attempt to pressure Georgia's secretary of state officials to overturn the election. But according to The Washington Post, it is unclear if Doug Ducey has been contacted yet by the special counsel's office. Given this front page news, I would imagine that calling Governor Ducey will be added to Jack Smith's growing to-do list if he hasn't already done so. Now, Jack Smith is under an extraordinary amount of scrutiny as he continues to lead criminal investigations into Donald Trump, who, as we speak, is the Republican Party's frontrunner for president. Unprecedented might be a word you are tempted to use here, but investigating someone like Donald Trump has, in fact, been done before. In 2018, the usual occupant of this hour, Rachel Maddow, put out a podcast about Richard Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew. It was called Bagman. In 1973, Vice President Agnew was facing the real prospect of assuming the presidency with Nixon on his way out the door because of Watergate. But in the middle of Watergate, Agnew was being investigated for his own criminal misdeeds. The three young federal prosecutors who were investigating Spiro Agnew faced an almost unfathomable question at the time. What happens if you bring criminal charges against a likely occupant of the White House? Given that we now find that exact question at the center of our current political moment, Rachel sat down again with those three prosecutors who investigated Spiro Agnew 50 years ago. And she wanted to see if they had any advice for Jack Smith or for us as the country experiences this again. The conversation is out today, a special bonus episode of Bagman. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcast. Here is a little preview of it now. Tim, what was your reaction um or what's been your reaction over time as we've um seen these indictments of trump no uh, department of justice worthy of its name uh could have failed to bring these charges those charges had to be brought and yet they scare the hell out of me um i am terrified that he somehow could be acquitted and if trump is acquitted um i think that'll probably elect him president again I want to bring into the conversation Mary McCord, former assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice. She's also a co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Lord Jarrett is also here, NBC News senior legal correspondent. Thank you both for being here. Mary, I'm going to start with you. You were a federal prosecutor. You worked at the highest levels of the Justice Department. How might the microscope that Jack Smith um, and his team, because there is a team of lawyers working on this. That how, how might they be affected by the microscope and the scrutiny that they are under right now? How does it affect the decision making? Yeah. Uh, I think that they're more affected in their decision making by understanding the significance of potentially bringing not not one, because they've already brought one, but a second criminal indictment against the former president, particularly during the actual the election season while he is the front runner. I don't my own experience when I was at the department, both in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. and at what we call Maine Justice in the National Security Division is I was so busy all day, every day into the wee hours. I wasn't consuming all the news where people are pontificating constantly and commenting and criticizing and speculating, etc. We were pretty much, you know, zeroed in on our investigation, making our decisions based 
focused on the guidelines and principles for federal prosecution, but also recognizing, you know, the potential political aspects of things we do. And so I think he's probably feeling the weight of what's my evidence? Do I have evidence to prove charges beyond a reasonable doubt, not just in Mar-a-Lago, where he already made that assessment, but with respect to January 6th? And if so, is it the right thing to do as a matter of prosecutorial discretion to bring to seek an indictment against the former president for the events surrounding January 6th? You know, I find I've, I I uh, know some lawyers from the Justice Department and, yeah, they, they do not watch the news uh, <laughs> some days, it feels like. But so, somewhere people are talking because there was this Washington Post story a couple weeks back um, that talked about how the FBI resisted bringing uh, an investigation looking specifically into Donald Trump and his role in January 6th for about a year. Right. Um, and obviously now we know Jack Smith is following that trail. But uh, in the piece, uh, there are a lot of anonymous individuals who um, are giving their thoughts from uh, allegedly inside the Department of Justice. And, and and I just I wonder if you think that the hesitancy from um, the FBI and some folks within the Department of Justice to take a hard look at Donald Trump. I mean, in, in his role in January 6th, um, and it wasn't until the January 6th committee came out and had their uh, proceedings. Rachel Maddow on her very program in this very hour uh, relentlessly stayed on the story. After that, we saw some movement. Do you think that hesitancy has, you know, hobbled uh, Jack Smith's investigation in any way or put extra pressure on him? Because now he's right up until an election, right up against one. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think, first of all, I think we don't know everything. That was great reporting, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone was talked to, and it doesn't necessarily mean that there was nothing going on during this gap of time. I know a lot of the individuals who were mentioned in that reporting, um, and I can understand why maybe very, very early on, January, February, there might have been a hesitancy to go full bore on the former president's upper echelon of advisors while they were also still busy rounding up the foot soldiers who actually engaged in the violence. But as time went on, it became more and more necessary and just consistent with normal Department of Justice prosecutorial steps to start working your way up, working your way up. Now, as that story pointed out, that working the way up ended up not working at some point. It just kind of hit a dead end and things got reinvigorated. And and so, yes, I think it would have, you know, it'd been great if more had been done earlier. Again, it's not, it's not clear to me just from that news article that there wasn't more that was being reported that was being done. Um, and certainly now there is time pressure on Jack Smith. I'm not particularly alarmed to read about, you know, some disputes between the FBI and the Department of Justice, some wanting to go forward. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. I mean, I've been in those hundreds of times, right? We're partners, we work together, but we have differences of opinion. And frankly, the FBI has really been in the hot seat for a while now, particularly vis-a-vis Donald Trump. And not that that makes it okay to be hesitant, but like, I get it. I get it why there might be some who are wanting to be super, super careful. I also get it why prosecutors are saying, we got to we got to amp this up and we've got to really start looking at that inner circle. And that's happening, clearly happening now. Clearly happening now. I mean, Laura, the details in the Washington Post story, uh, the recent story uh, about uh, Doug Ducey, uh, former Governor Ducey and the phone call. And now we also know about Fonnie Willis in Georgia. She has been telegraphing um, the timeline, if you will, about her investigation. She is investigating similar behavior in her state that Donald Trump called elected officials uh, there to pressure them. We've all heard about that phone call. I just, 
what are you hearing? What are your sources telling you about just the the volume of all of these investigations? And and are there any tea leaves? When when, when are some shoes going to drop, Laura? So I think the thing to recognize about the Ducey phone call that potentially makes it important is that it could speak to a pattern, right? Mm. So Fonnie Willis is obviously looking at things that happened in Georgia, including the call uh, to the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. The Ducey call, though, uh, to the extent that it follows the same playbook, she could use that in the same way that Jack Smith is using uh, the fact that the former president allegedly, in Smith's telling, uh, was— showing off a classified document to a group of people. He didn't charge that in the indictment, but it tells a story. It shows a pattern of behavior. It shows that this stuff is not on accident. It's not a coincidence. It's all part of the same scheme. And so that's why, to the extent um, that uh, Willis uses that, or to the extent that Jack Smith uses things that happen in Georgia, I I think it tells a coherent story, and it's certainly appealing to a jury to the extent it gets that far. When do you think we should uh, expect potential charges uh, in either—I mean, look, Laura, you are very well-sourced now. And, and Fonnie Willis in Georgia, she specifically sent out memos in March, and then her office said something again in May, uh, asking the court to uh, not schedule in-person uh, uh, proceedings, if you will, during the week of August 7th uh, through and August 14th. That's right in the middle of folks' vacations, but it seems like something— no kidding. Could be happening there. <laughs> yes. So I, it's kind of unusual, right? You don't usually see this type of. Um previewing, if you will, um, from a district attorney. And so all we can do is try to, to read the tea leaves there. I, I will say, though, when she had the, ingress, the investigative grand jury working and going, she said at the time that a decision was imminent. That was months ago, and we really haven't seen anything. Uh, now, obviously, you want somebody to take their time and to get it right. And so, obviously, even though everyone's eager to understand what's going on, you also, I don't think, want to encourage anyone to be rushing at something like this, especially given the gravity of the situation. Uh, we also do know, though, that security preps had been going on, which, again, suggests that people are at least gearing up for it. So the fact that um, officials from the uh, sheriff's office in Georgia were going down to Miami and also looking into the situation in New York suggests that they wouldn't do that if they didn't think that something was happening, right? That requires resources and time, and they're going to make that sort of investment if they think it's realistic. So there are just so many investigations going, Mary. We got the documents case, uh, January 6th, the Georgia DA, the New York hush money case, and, and those, are, those are just the ones we know about. There could be investigations that we are not yet aware of. Do you think that Jack Smith is worried that the sheer volume of um, the number of investigations into the former president could affect the the jury, for example, in any of these cases? Are any of the prosecutors concerned about that, that that maybe it looks a little overly aggressive on the part of the, the government? I think there's no question that's something that he'd be taking into account, right? Just that, you know, will it look like piling on? But I also think he's, again, going to be guided by the principles of, of federal prosecution, which is sort of the significant significance of the case, its importance, it's the federal interest involved. And, you know, in Mar-a-Lago, we were talking about the very, very important national security interests that were there and the obstruction of an official, you know, investigation. Those are very, very substantial federal interests. When January 6th, in a way, is almost even more critical of a federal interest. We're talking about the federal government's interest in the peaceful transition of power that is what has sustained our democracy since its founding. 
funding. Um, and here, what is being investigated is a very large scheme involving, you know, pressure on governors, pressure on secretary of state to find fraud that would overturn the results in those states. When that didn't work, pressure directly mm-hmm. on state legislatures to go ahead and sort of overrule the, the will of the people. And then we had the whole fraudulent elector scheme where electors, the Trump electors in the seven swing states where he lost, went ahead and met as though they were the real electors, cast their votes, votes and sent them to the former vice president, urging him to count them. And then, of course, the pressure on Vice President Pence in the lead up to and on January 6th. So that is pretty, those are pretty significant federal interests there. And I do think, you know, piling on is something he will be thinking about, but I think he'll be thinking about that in the context of each of his cases, as opposed to where they sit with respect to other cases that local or state DAs are bringing. All right. We will leave it there. Mary McCord, a former assistant attorney general for national security at the Justice Department, and Laura Jarrett, our extremely well-sourced NBC News senior legal correspondent. Thank you both for your time tonight and kicking us off this hour. Coming up, what a mass shooting over the weekend in a major American city says about us as a country. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott joins us live. That's next. In one sense, this is a crime scene. Just after 12.30 a.m. on Sunday, gunfire erupted at a neighborhood in South Baltimore, Maryland, called Brooklyn. Thirty people were shot. Many of them were critically injured. Two of them died, including a young woman who had recently graduated and was on her way to college. In another sense, this is the scene of a public health crisis and a failure of political will to do anything about the guns that are killing so many people. The mayor of Baltimore, Mayor Brandon Scott, is going to join us live in just a moment. But first, I want you to hear his words for his own city of Baltimore today. This is not just a Baltimore thing. We have to be honest. This is the United States of America. This is our longest standing public health challenge. And we need to focus on gun violence, regardless of where it happens, right? Whether it's in inner city Baltimore, whether it's in suburbia, whether it's in rural America, we have to take this conversation beyond not just me, but all my brother and sister mayors around the country who we have these conversations consistently. It's like we take turns telling each other that we're here to support each other and we know that we're going through. But you're talking about a country where it's easier for a 14-year-old kid to order pieces together to put a gun together and go out and use it in commitments of a crime than it is for me to get cleared in D from CVS. That's what we should be talking about every day in this country. You hear folks say, well, oh, the violence has happened in Democrat-led cities. Well, the guns are coming from Republican-led states, right? But who cares? People are dying in Baltimore, in the United States, and that's what should matter, and that's what we should be acting on every day. Joining us now is Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott. Mayor, thank you for being with us tonight. We appreciate you making the time. Uh, What is the latest update you can share with us at this hour? Yeah, thank you for having me, Simone. Uh, What we're still doing, of course, right now, our detectives are working, going through all the the hours of footage. We're going to look at every second of footage, not just from CCTV, from social media, going out, talking to uh, uh, as many witnesses as possible. When we have, in this case, so many young people, 15 of our victims were under the age of 18. In Maryland, they cannot be uh, talked to by police without their parent uh, permission or a lawyer present. So that elongates that 
process. And we've also, again, put the full weight of my city government in Brooklyn. I just came from a community meeting where we were talking about how we, uh, it, as our neighborhood stabilization response done from our mayor's office and neighborhood safety engagement, we'll be there for 45 days. But what we can do working with that community from here on out to make sure that we're wrapping our arms and every single resource is coming to bear. I had the unfortunate uh, tonight having to talk with uh, Elias' parents and, and Elias' parents, parents tonight to talk to both parents who lost children. One who just graduated from high school and supposed to be starting college. Another who his mom was crying literally right in front of me as I tried to console her because her son uh, used to tutor young people in high school, right? This is what we're talking about uh, dealing with this mass shooting that happened in our city uh, that was an act carried out. And we know that this is going to be illegal guns when we get to the end of it. More than 200 people are said to have attended uh, the block party mayor. How come you don't yet have a suspect identified? Well, listen, th because this is still fresh. Again, uh, when you have a lot of the victims themselves, who still we still have seven of them in the hospital, right? And we have to get permission to talk to those young people. That's a process that we're going to have to go through. Going through that footage, looking to see who was out there, who had weapons. I want to be very clear. We are going to find these people. We're going to hold the people that pulled that gun, that trigger responsible, Simone. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to look at where that gun came from, what there was traffic into Baltimore. Who sold it? We're going to look at manufacturers, at dealers. Everyone that plays a part in what happened in this tragedy will be held accountable in every way possible. Police think there were at least three guns uh, involved in this mass shooting. Do you yet know whether the guns were legal? And uh, I know that this has been a, a huge issue for you. Ghost guns, getting them out of circulation, that is what you were alluding to in your remarks in the press conference, where you talked about a 14-year-old being able to order pieces to put a gun together. Yeah, I think, Simone, we, we don't know uh, yet. Uh, we, we know that there are multiple weapons. We're going to be going back through working with our partners at ATF and making sure that we're seeing exactly uh, what, how many weapons were used, were they used in the cabins of other crimes, which we all we always get those hits and see that these weapons are, are used in crimes, not just here in Baltimore, but we get guns that were used in crimes in other cities and other states that end up here as well. We do know that ghost guns are a big problem, not just here in Baltimore, but across this country. Country. Uh, Maryland itself, we banned ghost guns. And guess what? Uh, we banned ghost guns a few years ago, and ghost gun recoveries are down for us here in Baltimore this year. But we still know that guns here uh, tend to come from other states. We recover more weapons, Simone, that come from other states every year than here in Maryland because of Maryland's gun laws. And we have to have that conversation. There should not be. And then you're talking to uh, someone who's the grandson of a pig farmer from North Carolina. I first learned how to shoot my granddaddy's shotgun when I was 10 years old. If folks are owning guns the right way, that's their prerogative. That's their American right. But we're talking about 14, 15 year olds, people that are prohibited from having guns, being able to go on a website, order pieces of a gun together and put it together. And the company knowingly is doing that because they are knowingly going around gun laws. And those weapons are being used in cities and towns and areas across this country every day. Congress should ban them right now. That shouldn't even be a discussion with the amount 
amount of mass shootings that we had this year, let alone since the first one that everyone talked about in Columbine High School way back in 1999. We need the Congress to get off their butts and get involved in this fight. And it's not just, not just ghost guns. It's how guns are trafficked and illegal guns keep ending up in the hands of people who are pulling triggers and killing people in malls, in churches, at block parties, on streets each and every day. This is America's longest standing public health challenge. And we as a country have not dealt with this issue in its entirety. And it's time that we actually do it. Not Band-Aids. Mm. We have a president who's done so much for this. We have congressional members who've been fighting for this. But we have so many members sitting in Congress who still weigh American guns over American lives. And that's despicable. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott, on a very busy day for you, sir. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. When we come back, as Republican presidential hopefuls who are not named Donald Trump try to get some momentum, they do not have a lot of time to play catch up. Don't worry, I'll explain next. Donald Trump's challengers for the Republican presidential nomination are struggling to find their footing. This weekend, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign ended Pride Month by sharing a video that was widely panned as homophobic. The video is set to club music with rainbow filters. It shows Donald Trump at various points in his presidency expressing support for the LGBTQ community, despite his long record of curtailing their rights. The video then celebrates DeSantis' own crackdown on LGBTQ rights, promoting headlines that call DeSantis' policies draconian. The DeSantis campaign stunt was met with quick condemnation from both Democrats and Republicans. The Log Cabin Republicans, a conservative pro-LGBTQ group, called the video divisive and desperate and said it ventured into homophobic territory. The most prominent openly gay member of Trump's administration, Richard Grinnell, called the video undeniably homophobic. And Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg had this to say in an interview on Sunday. And I'm going to leave aside the strangeness of trying to prove your manhood by putting up a video that splices images of you in between oiled up shirtless bodybuilders. Who are you trying to help? Who are you trying to make better off? And what public policy problems do you get up in the morning thinking about how to solve? The video is the latest attempt by a Republican presidential contender to try to win over Trump's base of diehard MAGA extremists. But Trump's base has proven time and time again that they are not easily courted. Consider Senator Lindsey Graham, who has spent the last six years as a loyal Trump foot soldier. Well, this weekend, Graham appeared alongside Trump at a campaign event in his home state of South Carolina. And this was the welcome he got from that Trump-supporting crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome United States Senator Lindsey Graham. Welcome to Pickens. Thank y'all for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. Every campaign strategist nightmare. Joining us now are former Republican Congressman Carlos Corbello and Politico White House correspondent and Playbook co-author Eugene Daniels. Carlos, l let me start with you. How much do base Republican voters actually want their candidates to go after the LGBTQ community? 
Look, Simone, there is a segment of the Republican primary electorate uh, that finds this in some way attractive, uh, can get behind this. It is a minority of the Republican electorate, but Ron DeSantis is clearly trying to do everything possible to catch up with Donald Trump. Now, at the end of the day, this is a fool's error. Number one, it's wrong. It's very divisive. Uh, and, um, you know, Donald Trump, for all of his flaws, I can tell you from personal conversations with him, doesn't have anything against uh, the LGBT community, uh, believes in equality. And for Ron DeSantis to attack him on this when there are so many issues to attack Donald Trump on is just a shame. Now, Politically, the problem is that in a general election, swing voters in swing states and swing districts outright reject this kind of rhetoric, uh, this kind of divisiveness, this kind of speech. So while Governor DeSantis might be trying to do himself a favor in this primary, trying to pick up some votes wherever he can, he's really setting himself up for failure if he actually gets past the primary. You know, um, DeSantis is... For for way, if you will, uh, wading into these divisive waters that he regularly swims in, if we're just going to be honest, it, it, it's like red meat for the 35 uh, percent. Then you've got folks like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. And I think that he recently had one of the better Republican answers uh, when it came to discussing uh, the LGBTQ community. He framed decisions about trans health care for children as a parent's decision and not the government's. Uh, and I frankly think that he demonstrated you can give an answer that doesn't contain red meat. Can you survive a Republican primary that way, though, Carlos, in this particular climate? These days, it really doesn't seem so, Simone. It's an experiment. Chris Christie's conducting it. He's not getting a whole lot of traction right now. Uh, but, you know, again, for all of his flaws, you hear Donald Trump out there talking about abortion, for example, criticizing Ron DeSantis for the six-week ban in the state of Florida, even someone like Donald Trump, who has obviously adopted many extreme positions, understands what it takes to win and understands that you can't disqualify yourself entirely in a general election by taking these extremist positions, by saying things that swing voters in a lot of those districts that since the Republican trifecta of 2016 have gone Democrat, well, that's going to continue as long as Republicans keep following uh, this Ron DeSantis playbook. It isn't even mm -hmm. the Donald Trump playbook anymore because Trump is rejecting some elements of it. It's, Donald Trump's playbook is so interesting and to me because on one hand, he's saying that about Ron DeSantis, and on the other, he's saying, I overturned Roe. It just makes no sense. So, but that's the Republican primary. Eugene, there is not a Democratic primary because Joe Biden has decided to run for re-election, so he is the Democrats' nominee. Now, the White House, they, the president is running um, his campaign, and the White House has said that the president is going to continue to govern while he is doing this election situation. And um, I'm, I'm wondering about that strategy amidst what is a very tense political climate um, uh, and in a time where turnout is going to be the key when it does come to the general election. Yeah, at the center of their message is that he is the person who put his hands on the wheel. And if you didn't like Donald Trump, he kind of eased things down a little bit in, in the country. That is at the center. And his governing, him being president, being in the White House, that's at the center of that. So that's part one. And so you've seen some of these events that they've done a little bit, um, but they've been mostly like policy events, right? They did the event um, about Roe v. Wade. Um, they did an event around um, 
um, his economic message with a bunch of unions talking about that. That is what it's going to look like, I'm told, and that they're not. You're not going to see him out in the streets as much as maybe some folks would want him to. They often we were talking right before we came on. They talk about um, how Barack Obama ran for re-election in 2012. And they say this is it'll look more like the Obama strategy. Exactly, and and these are two very different types of politicians. It is a very different time period in American politics. And Donald Trump was not running in 2012, right? Ron DeSantis was not running in 2012. And so you have Democrats a little nervous. They've been wanting to see him out there. They've been wanting him especially to see him more fundraising more, seeing Vice President Kamala Harris, the the principals, Joe Biden and Doug Imhoff out there fundraising more. They've been doing more of that. I wouldn't expect a lot more to kind of satiate those people who are a little nervous until the end of this year going into the beginning of next. So we see, uh, especially Donald Trump, for and you know, Donald Trump is whether people want to accept it or not, he is right now the front runner. Now, I do think things can change. The way you win a presidential uh, primary is delegate by delegate, state by state. And Chris Christie is kind of gaining in New Hampshire, so we'll see what happens there. But Donald Trump's strategy has still been these huge rallies. We don't see him doing a lot of retail politics. Uh, so it, do you think that there's room in this primary for a Republican who may be good at retail politics to edge out Donald Trump? What are, what are other Republicans saying out there. Yeah, there there could be, but the difference is in the Republican Party, you both have to be good at the um, hand-wringing and, the, and, and that politicking, but also speak like someone like Donald Trump, speak to the base mm-hmm. of the Republican Party. And there is not a candidate at this point who is good at the handshaking and kissing babies, um, and also, and that, that is, is charming and, and voters really like them, and um, can give that red meat to the base. Ron DeSantis isn't it. Chris Christie, he is not liked by the base of the Republican Party. And so finding someone who can toe that line at this point in this primary process doesn't exist. Mm. Carlos, I mean, it's a, such an important point. And I mean, we've got a big test coming up. The August debate, right, is the first big test, um, a question of whether folks will stand on that debate stage again, end of August. But then you've also got no labels out there because they are still threatening to mount this third party campaign. I understand the notion of giving people who don't like the two-party system options, but I personally think what No Labels is doing is slightly disingenuous. And, and I mean, their main argument is that they will drop their bid if Joe Biden is polling ahead of the Republican nominee in the spring. You, We all here know there will be no Republican nominee in the spring. So what? how do you think No Labels um, uh, just will affect the, the primary process for the Republican Party going forward? Well, it's hard to predict because this is kind of a new exercise. I mean, it's been, it's been done a few times in the past, but uh, right now, Simone, if you look at the polling, you almost have to forgive a group like No Labels for pursuing this because most Americans do not want another head-to-head between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. The numbers are there. They're clear. Most Americans reject those two choices. So No Labels believes that this is the Uh, election to try this, that this is the time where it might work. Now, uh, the concern that many have, it's true, this could benefit uh, Donald Trump if uh, it does split Democrats. In the uh, you know GOP primer, I don't think this effort is going to have uh, much of an impact. I don't think voters are going to uh, contemplate this as they go to the polls early next year. The big question, Simone, and you mentioned this debate that's coming up in August, can anyone break through? Can anyone distinguish themselves from Donald Trump in a way that does not alienate the Trump base, which people need 
need a portion of that base in order to win. Is there a new dynamic candidate? I'm biased. I'm from Miami, like uh, Mayor Francis Suarez, who might be able to uh, convince people that it's time to just turn the page and try something completely different. Uh, we have Vivek Rabwani out there. I mean, these are all you know unique uh, candidates uh, out of the mainstream for now. But I think that's really the only type of candidate that can break through. I don't think these candidates that are trying to follow Donald Trump to the nomination mm. are going to succeed. And I don't think the anti-Trump approach is going to succeed either. So someone needs to try something different and they better figure it out soon. Well, the clock is ticking. Debates matter, folks. I can't wait till the end of August. Carlos Cabello and Eugene Daniels. Thank you both very, very much. Coming up, we have a new documentary about the life and complicated legacy of the so-called father of the atomic bomb. That's right, J. Robert Oppenheimer. The documentary is out next week, and the film's director joins me right after the break. Stay with us. We were marching up from island to island. Landing on the beaches against dug-in Japanese defenses. Losing young men in large numbers. Every day that went by without this bomb being successfully tested was a day in which thousands of Americans are dying. Thousands of Yanks have been wounded and other thousands have sacrificed their lives to drive a fanatical foe from this vital base, the doorstep to Japan itself. They knew the Japanese were defeated, but defeat and surrender are two different things. So how do you get them to surrender? In a world of atomic weapons, wars will cease. And that is not a small thing. That was a clip from the new NBC News Studios documentary called To End All War, Oppenheimer and the Atomic Bomb. It's a look at the life of the lead scientist for the Manhattan Project, J. Robert Oppenheimer, famously known as the father of the atomic bomb. Right now, Oppenheimer's story is having a resurging moment in American pop culture. Christopher Nolan's dramatic retelling of the scientist's life starring Killian Murphy is set to come out later this month. But beyond the box office, Oppenheimer's impact, his success in creating nu nuclear weapons and technology, it lives with us to this very day. And there are lessons from his life that should be applied now in the 21st century. So joining us now to discuss is the director of that documentary, To End All War. It airs this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC and will be streaming the next day on Peacock. Chris Castle, thank you so much for being with us. Your documentary is amazing, first of all, and it paints Oppenheimer as having this duality. You know, he was described as being tortured by his invention, yet he never apologized for creating the atomic bomb after it was used to kill so many people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, I think it comes out of uh, the original genesis of the project was to defeat Hitler, to defeat the Nazis. Um, nuclear fission was discovered in Nazi Germany in 1939. And we were operating under the assumption that they had a two-year head start on us. And God forbid Hitler should get the bomb. So everybody initially and throughout the Manhattan Project was all in on this. Um, the interesting thing happens when Hitler commits suicide, Germany is defeated, and then they immediately turn and look to Japan. Um, and 
you know, there were some scientists that felt, you know, maybe maybe it's time to step away. Uh, Oppenheimer at that point, um, you know, he was so far down the road. I think he knew the government was going to use this bomb as a display of power um, come what may. But I think he also rationalized it in thinking that, um, you know, if th if they're going to use this bomb, let's make sure it's the last time it's ever used. Let's make it as bad as it can be so that oh. the world never forgets, uh, which is an interesting way to look at it. But, um, you know, he it, there is a duality in that at the same time that he was helping the military planners choose targets, choose uh, the height at which they should um you know, uh, detonate the bomb. Mm -hmm. He's also having these private conversations as we talk about with his secretary, uh, and, and just kind of lamenting about these poor little people, he calls them, uh, that he knows are going to be killed. And so, you know, even as he's planning this, um, nuclear attack, he's also, um, realizing the, the horrible toll it's going to take and, and really, you know, obviously feeling really bad about it. Oppenheimer, uh, he was also a victim of McCarthyism. And so his advocacy against the proliferation of nuclear weapons, it ended up putting a target on his back. And then his past connections to communism through his family and his lover ultimately are what led to his downfall as an influential public figure. Do you think that the, right. the current moment would look a little different if Oppenheimer had been maybe more successful in containing the atom bombs use or, or was the genie really already out of the bottle at that point? Was there no going? Yeah, back? That's an eternal debate. It's hard to tell. I mean, the, the genie was out of the bottle. Oppenheimer's main issue was let's not go to the hydrogen bomb. The hydrogen bomb was the next step. It was uh, turned out to be a thousand times more powerful than the bombs that were dropped in Japan. Um, and it couldn't possibly have a tactical use, right? I mean, this is something that, you know, can kill millions of people in a single attack. Um, what could be the possible military use for that? And so, you know, he argued quite strongly against uh, the use of the hydrogen bomb or the, or actually the development of the hydrogen bomb in the first place. Uh, however, you know, you can ask the question, had we not developed it, would the Russians have anyway? Um, and that's a question that can't really be answered. Um, but, you know, the, uh, the, the hawks prevailed as it were, and, you know, we went ahead and we built the hydrogen bomb. Um, there was this fever to stay ahead and fever to stay ahead of the Russians come what may and at all costs. Hmm. At all costs. Oh, this is this is why people have to watch the documentary, Chris. This is we just teased it, so the people are just gonna have to watch Chris Castle, the director of the documentary to end all war, Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb. Again, it airs this Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on MSNBC, and it streams the next day on Peacock. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, that is all in on this Monday night, folks. Before we go, I, I want to take the time to wish everyone a, a good and happy and safe 4th of July. We have had a lot of reasons lately to consider the progress our country has made toward becoming a truly free and equal society. So wherever you find yourself tomorrow, let's all take a moment and consider how much work it took to get our freedoms for all of us and how much work it will take from all of us to protect those freedoms. Rachel will be back here next Monday at 9, and I will see you this weekend at 4 p.m. Eastern on my show, Simone. Have a wonderful 4th of July night, folks. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. 
Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.